to Ludwig Lopate at Large. I'm Ludwig Lopate. The Federal Reserve System, the central banking system of the United States, was created by Woodrow Wilson in Congress on December 23, 1913, after a series of financial panics. And its role has been updated over the years in response to crises like the Great Depression in the 1930s, during a period of stagnation, stagnation in 1977, during the Great Recession of 2008, and most recently, during the first months of the COVID-19 pandemic, when it uh, created $3 trillion to stop another financial panic. But Lev Menand, an associate professor at Columbia Law School who made appointments at Obama's Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, argues in his new book, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis, that many of the Fed's efforts to stabilize the economy have worsened economic inequality. His book is published by Columbia Global Reports, and it brings Lev Menand to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. European countries already had central banks. Uh, The Bank of England was established in 1694. The Bank of France established during the Napoleonic periods. And didn't this country establish the Bank of the United States in our early years? Yes, it did, 1791. And then a second attempt was made after the charter for that bank expired in 1816. So uh, what was different about uh, the situation uh, in 1913? Uh, was the uh, uh, the central banking system inadequate to deal with more modern problems? This is a great question, uh, and it requires me to fill in a little bit for, for you and for the audience what happened between 1816 when Congress created the second bank of the United States and 1913 when Congress created the Federal Reserve. So, uh, Basically, we first shifted to a period of uh, federal government, um, uh, uh, the federal government left monetary matters to the states. And this led to the first Great Depression uh, between 1837 and 1842. Um, We don't think about this uh, anymore. Most Americans aren't aware of it when they talk about the Great Depression, they talk about the 1930s, but for, for many, for many, for many Americans, for many generations, the Great Depression was, was in the late 1830s. This was a result of a monetary collapse after the, after the Second Bank of the United States um, closed up shop. During the Civil War, the terrible U.S. banking system became a major liability for the North. And Abraham Lincoln and his Secretary of the Treasury decided that there had to be a federal response, and they created the national banking system, which is the banking system that we still use today. And they passed the National Bank Act in 1863 and 1864. And this created a system for federally chartered investor-owned banks. And the idea behind it was, we're not going to create a third bank of the United States. That's not going to work politically in this country. We tried it twice before, and there was too much resistance to concentrating power over the money supply in the hands of so few individuals. So we're going to create a, 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 a we're going to split the atom. We're going to create a decentralized, diffused banking system. And each town, each state can have its own banks, and they won't be too big. And they will, they will be run by different sets of investors, different boards, and they'll be coordinated by an office in the Treasury Department. So the they, were, they were investor-owned, government-chartered banks. Exactly. And it was that system that 
uh, wasn't working properly and gave rise to the Federal Reserve. And so in 1913, when Congress created the Federal Reserve Act, we had the predecessors of today's J.P. Morgan Chase and today's Wells Fargo and today's Bank of America. They were all in existence. They had the federal charters under the National Bank Act, and the system wasn't working well. And Congress created the Federal Reserve Act, and it did not think it was creating a central bank. They explicitly said, we're not creating a central bank. This isn't going to be the Bank of England. This is not going to be the Bank of the United States. What we're going to have are 12 uh, regional reserve banks that are going to be overseen by a government board of control that's going to coordinate together these 12 banks and the government board of control, this very diffuse decentralized banking system. We had moved beyond the Bank of the United States, the central bank model, to a very decentralized model. And now we needed to move back a little bit with a public board of control. But at this time, in 1913, the Bank of England was still in private hands. It wasn't a government agency. It wasn't a government board of control. It was a it was a bank chartered by the government, owned by private investors that did a general banking business with the public for for profit. The Federal Reserve was a real break with uh, international practice in that regard. It was it was twelve regional cooperative. Um, bank clearinghouses, essentially, with a government board of control that was a lot like the Interstate Commerce Commission, which Congress had created several decades previously to regulate the railroads. This would regulate the banks. The, the, the uh, privately the owned commercial banks. Privately owned commercial banks. Now, nationally charted commercial banks are required to hold stock in and can elect some board members of the Federal Reserve Bank of their region, can't they? Exactly. So, the design was not to centralize power uh, in some new, uh, you know, Washington D.C.-based bank. Uh, the, the the first two banks in the United States were Philadelphia-based. Not to centralize power in some new D.C.-based bank, but to create twelve uh, different uh, banks that would be owned by the member banks that were already in the country, uh, and and they would be controlled. Uh, in part by those by those banks, and in part by this board uh, that 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 Wilson uh, set up that would that would be uh, that would be in Washington. And, and Congress, so, is, oh, go ahead. So I'm by, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that the twelve reserve banks we still have them today, and while the member banks don't get to enjoy sort of the returns on the reserve banks' operations, uh, their balance sheet profits go to the Treasury. Um, they still are the nominal shareholders. So J.P. Morgan Chase owns shares in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they mm. still vote for members of the board of directors of these regional Fed banks. Now, Congress established three key objectives for monetary policy to alleviate financial crises in that Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Its mandate was to maximize employment, stabilize prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. Uh, and that uh, has led to the expansion of the roles and responsibilities of the Federal Reserve Bank. Were the inequities there from the start? Well, so that mandate that you just referred to was actually added by Congress in 1977. So in 1913, Congress wasn't so specific about um, the Fed's role uh, in the macro economy, and we were still on the gold standard. What Congress had in mind was that, uh, and this is what the act said, the Federal Reserve would allow for a more elastic currency, meaning that 
during periods of the year where the currency demand of the public increased. We still had a very agricultural economy at the time, and so there was seasonality in the demand for money. The government could make it easier for the banking system to, to accommodate that by, uh, by allowing these Federal Reserve banks to expand their balance sheets, issue Federal Reserve notes, the money we know as cash today, uh, and uh, avoid, uh, avoid financial tightening as a result of seasonal pressures. The other goal was to avoid intermittent panics, to support the banking system in the face of economic uncertainty. So there aren't, there aren't runs that disrupt economic activity and cause severe recessions. And that was the idea at the beginning. When the country left the gold standard uh, in the 1930s uh, and, then, uh, and then finally in 1971, the Fed's role gradually expanded to play a more active part in managing the business cycle, um, the ups and downs of the economy more generally. So uh, instead of just narrowly preventing financial contraction in the banking system, the Fed would adjust monetary policy, adjust monetary conditions with an eye towards the larger uh, macroeconomic situation in the country. And that's what led Congress in 1977 to give uh, to give the Fed a specific charge in Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act, um, which is the, the, three, the three prongs that you just cited, it's often known today as the dual mandate, but it's actually three things. Uh, and it's actually a single um, uh, uh, mandate in the sense that the Fed's job is to manage monetary conditions with an eye towards long-term full capacity utilization in the economy as reflected by, in the long-term, uh, maximum employment, price stability, and moderate long-term interest rates. So the Fed isn't responsible for, I think this is a common misunderstanding, even amongst Fed officials and government policymakers, the Fed isn't responsible itself for ensuring the economy is at maximum employment or is at price stability. It's responsible for ensuring the money supply is consistent with um, the economy over the long term reaching those reaching those goals. You mentioned cash. You say most Americans don't understand how money works in this country, including the definitions and differences between cash and deposits. Um, uh, now, why does that matter? This is critical. So think about how you get through the day. With uh, cash. With cash. But also, how do you get paid? Not with cash, right? Your employer no. doesn't pay you with cash. No, money is deposited uh, into my bank account. Exactly. You receive a direct deposit. Um, and cash plays no part in that. These are just ledger entries on the balance sheets of banks. And so one bank changes a ledger entry on its books, and then, and then your bank changes a ledger entry on its books. And that's how you get paid. When you pay your credit card bill, cash isn't a part of this, right? You can't even pay your credit card bill with cash. You have to uh, use your deposits. Now, I think most Americans just sort of assume when they log on to their bank account, they log on to Bank of America, they see they have $3,000 in their account, uh, that there are, you know, that Bank of America is like holding dollars for them, but they're not. <laughs> the Bank of America isn't holding dollars for them. And when Bank of America lends, lends you money, like to buy a house, 
Um, it doesn't actually need dollars to do that. It just increases the number in an Excel spreadsheet, basically, um, in its systems. And so you see a higher, a higher number there. So what allows for that um, convertibility between cash and bank deposits um, is, is government policy, because there's actually $18 trillion of bank deposits that businesses and individuals are using to pay for things and much, 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 much less cash. There's only $2 trillion of cash in circulation. A huge amount of that circulates overseas, so it's not even domestically available to backstop those deposits. And a lot of that is not in the bank vaults at all. So, uh, so you have all these deposits that are not backed by, by actual cash. The banks have created um, but what allows you to trust that as equivalent to money is, is government policy, and in particular, the Federal Reserve. Now, I suspect I'm not alone in not walking around with very much cash in my wallet. I have these cards, uh, bank cards, that uh, I pay for things. If I go to a restaurant, I hand them that the card, uh, or, or and even unless the the, uh, the the shop says that they're going to charge me extra if I use a card, I tend to use the card. Absolutely, and 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 one of the major policy issues for central bankers in the U.S. and and around the world uh, right now is what's going to happen with the disappearance of cash because cash is being used uh, less and less. Uh, and cards and online payments are more and more common. Uh, and uh, it actually costs the government quite a bit of money to make cash available. It's not a very efficient uh, payment, payment mechanism, but it does have a lot of important advantages. It doesn't require technology to use, um, and it's private. So when you have a transaction, there's no you know, record that the government immediately has of that transaction the way uh, if you transact using bank deposits, there's a huge amount of uh, record keeping involved. Doesn't the Fed conduct research into the economy? The Fed conducts an enormous amount of research into the economy. It's one of the largest economics departments, essentially, in the world, if not the largest. It, it, it spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year on, on economists, on PhD economists who conduct research on a wide range of topics uh, about, about the economy, um, micro and macro levels, including things like how much people use cash and how much they use cards and what that might mean for the future of the financial system. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Lev Menand, whose book, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis, is published by Columbia Global Reports. Don't you argue that the Fed's transformation is part of an international trend and that the central banks of Europe and Japan have gone through similar transformations? Yes. So... Um, there has been an uh, underlying shift in the structure of the global monetary and financial system, which implicates not just the U.S., but also Europe and Japan. And a lot of what we've seen with the Fed over the last 15 years, we've also seen in Europe and even earlier in Japan. They are connected, though. It's not, uh, you know, three, four distinct phenomenon all happening at the same time. It's in many ways one phenomenon, and it's the rise of globalized, under-regulated 
and, and, and sometimes unregulated financial markets um, and largely dollar-based financial markets. And so Japan and Europe, they are actually part of the problem that we have in the United States, which is that their financial institutions are engaged in a dollar banking business. Really? The, the euro isn't powerful enough to, <laughs> to compete? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, much to the chagrin of many European bankers and policymakers, the dollar is a very important currency in Europe. And European mm. banks, um, in addition to having euro-denominated deposits, maintain um, dollar-denominated deposits, which means that they are essentially creating dollar money just like U.S. banks, except that they don't have a charter from the U.S. government to do it, mm. and they're not subject to regulation by U.S. bank regulators. Are the statutory responsibilities of the Fed any different from other central banks around the world? Quite a bit different, because as we, as we touched on a few minutes ago, a lot of this central banks around the world were created in different circumstances to further uh, different purposes. So the Bank of England was initially an investor-owned, uh, though government chartered, it was, it was investor-owned, a private uh, for-profit business, and it continued to be um, an investor-owned business through the Second World War until it was nationalized, uh, I believe, in 1946. And so the Bank of England has much broader statutory authority to conduct a general banking business. It was, it was a bank the way J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America is a bank. The Federal Reserve is ne was never set up to be a bank in that way. It was, it, was, it was designed for a much more limited purpose to help regulate um, uh, an investor-owned banking system that we had, that we had already set up. Uh, and so there's a, real dis there's a real difference between the purpose and the statutory framework for the Bank of England and the Fed. Similarly, there are a lot of central banks that were created for the first time after the Second World War. I assume uh, China has a very powerful central bank. Yes. Yeah, so the, the Chinese People's Bank of China has a, also has a broader set of authorities than, than the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England. So one thing that the, that the, that the People's Bank of China does is they provide um, what's called window guidance. They, they actually can say to their banking system, expand your loans, expand your balance sheet by this percent in the next period. So whereas in the U.S., the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates, uh, overnight, which is an overnight rate uh, that banks lend to each other in an effort to get banks to expand their balance sheet. It doesn't actually instruct them, expand your balance sheet. It makes it cheaper for them to do that, and it hopes that they will expand their balance sheet, spurring um, demand in the economy. Uh, but in China, the central bank can actually say, you need to expand your balance sheet by this amount, um, which is a... Which is a which is a more state-directed uh, form of, uh, of financial and monetary stimulus. I'm assuming that Russian banking has uh, suffered from a series of hits because of all the sanctions recently. Yeah, so the Russian banking system is um, under a lot of strain right now, and it's, it's in the process of being um, uh, uh, steadily uh, disconnected from the rest of the global uh, banking system, in particular the U.S. banking system, as a result of uh, a variety of sanctions that the U.S. government and uh, the EU have imposed on many of the largest 
uh, Russian banks, as well as the Russian central bank uh, itself, which has had uh, a lot of its accounts at other at other banks and central banks frozen so that it can't access uh, the basically the deposit money that it has saved up in those accounts and it can't use that deposit money to support its currency or any of the other goals of, of, of the Russian government. Is that uh, based on the things that the Fed does or is that based on things that uh, White House and Congress decide? So the Fed is involved in the sense that it maintains uh, accounts at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for um, well over 100 uh, foreign um, uh, banks and monetary authorities. Um, And it also often engages in custody services where it will hold like treasury securities, for example, that are owned by another government on, uh, on, on their behalf. And it holds a lot of gold for other central banks in its vault. But the Fed doesn't have a role in uh, deciding the rules for whether or not a country can access its accounts. That's a decision for the Treasury Department and the office of uh, the, the sanctions office in the Treasury Department. And um, so, so in the case of the sanctions on the Russian central bank, there was a there was a decision made by the Treasury Secretary about uh, about what uh, U.S. Banks, including the Federal Reserve, can lawfully do with respect to Russian accounts, freezing them in in many cases. And the Fed is bound by that and has to follow that that um, that sanction rule, just as uh, any commercial bank like J.P. Morgan Chase would have to. On the other hand, is it fair to say that the power to shape our economic future doesn't lie fully in the White House or the Treasury or in Congress, but at the Fed? So the Fed has a lot of control of our economic future. And this is part of the reason I wrote this book and part of the reason that I think we need reform. The Fed is overtasked right now. It's trying to accomplish more than it reasonably can do in a, in a good and effective way for the American people. Um, and it's it, the, the side effects of over-relying on the Fed are things like over-financialization of the economy, the expansion of the financial sector over the last 20 years. Um, you know, many people thought after 2008, the financial sector would shrink down to a more reasonable size as a percentage of the economy. That hasn't happened. In fact, the uh, current trend of Federal Reserve policy actually began to some degree in 2008, didn't it? 2008 was a major shift where the Fed's support for a lot of shadow banking, a lot of deposit money creation outside of the banking system um, became explicitly supported by the government to prevent it from um, prevent it from collapsing, which is what happened in 2008. And while in the moment that's all for the good, uh, the collapse of the shadow banking system would trigger a second Great Depression. And we were on the verge of one in 2008. Um, uh, It got pretty bad. It got pretty bad. And that was because of serious failures of shadow banks like Lehman Brothers would be a big example. Um, If the Fed had not stepped in and and that whole shadow banking sector had just collapsed, we would have certainly had a second Great Depression. And uh, so in the moment, there's, there's a real need for the Fed to try to contain this damage. But the dynamic effect over time is uh, the Fed still doesn't have the ex-ante tools to regulate. 
this sector. And so if all you have is the Fed having to step in when things go wrong, that's, the, that's a recipe for, uh, for the migration of banking and financial activities out of the banking system into the un- under-regulated shadow banking system for uh, large financial sector profits and the socialization of losses if something goes wrong. Um, and we need, to, we need to have sort of more fundamental reform to prevent that uh, from being the pattern. In some ways, since 2008, we've gone back to sort of a pre-Fed 19th century uh, style economy where every time there's a business cycle downturn, there's a run on, on, on shadow banks. There's a, there's, a, there's a panic in the system. Um, and, uh, and that's not a good way to run an economy and, or a society, really. The, 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 the knock-on consequences for the sort of way we have our financial setup now with, with over-relying on the Fed, both to hold that system together and then also to just sort of deal with things like inflation or, or disinflation or high unemployment, the over-reliance on the Fed to address all those problems, it just doesn't have the tools to address them in the right ways. And we need to, we need to make some fundamental reforms sooner rather than later. So when we see reports of uh, Congress fighting over financial reform, is that kind of irrelevant? Because has the Fed moved beyond its statutory authority without legislative direction from Congress? So uh, let me take those questions separately. So first, there was a major effort at financial reform, and I don't think it was irrelevant. It culminated in 2010 in the Dodd-Frank Act. And that act put in place a number of measures that um, made the chances of a 2008-style crisis um, less likely. but those measures were not structural changes. They were more like technocratic fixes on the margins. And so we saw a major panic in 2020 nonetheless, because structurally the system was still vulnerable. Um, in addition, many of the changes that were made in 2010 have proven to be um, uh, very hard to use. So there was the creation of something called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or the FSOC, that was going to basically extend the regulatory umbrella for banks to shadow banks. Turns out that the way that the FSOC is set up and its, its, its powers, it's very difficult for it to actually do this. So currently, uh, very few institutions outside of the banking system have actually been successfully brought into the umbrella by the by the FSOC. So, so I think the financial reform debates over the past 13 years are important, but they haven't, they haven't come close to solving it in a sort of structural way the, the underlying problem, which leaves the Federal Reserve um, on the hook for holding the financial system together in the face of any economic uncertainty without giving it the ability to actually protect the system. Um, um, on an ongoing basis. You discuss parallels between the way both the courts and the Fed have been driven to fill public policy vacuums that inaction by Congress and the White House have created. Yeah, so there is this um, important uh, parallel that's to keep in mind, which is that the Fed is can be, because of its because of its balance sheet, its ability to create money, an alternative to the traditional political process, the traditional legislative process, when it comes to certain aspects of monetary policy. Just in the way that the Supreme Court, with its sort of broad 
powers of judicial review um, can sometimes serve uh, as an alternative to Congress and the legislative process for certain sorts of political or social goals. And so you see uh, in periods like the last decade and a half where the political legislative traditional process is broken down or um, uh, not having the results for certain groups of people that they would like to see from it. But weren't positive reforms made in the Dodd-Frank Act in, in 2010? Absolutely. Um, so reforms were made. Uh, here I'm actually talking more about the, um, well, reforms were made, but not reforms sufficient to prevent a, a future run and panic mm -hmm. uh, in 2020. Uh, and then a need for massive support for the financial system again in 2020. And that support uh, didn't come from Congress, although Congress did provide some support in the CARES Act. Uh, a huge amount of that support came through the Federal Reserve, uh, through a creative interpretation of its authorities. And so there was half a trillion dollars lent to overseas um, uh, uh, foreign central banks. That wasn't a, a bill that was passed through Congress to support uh, to support dollar-based banking overseas. That was just done by the Federal Reserve. Similarly, in the in the in the decade of the 2010s, when uh, the economy was stuck in the mud uh, following the, the, the panic in the fall of 2008. Uh, the Federal Reserve started to expand its balance sheet through quantitative easing in effect to make up for a lack of spending by Congress, which would have been a much better uh, and more effective response response to the recession. So you see the Fed stepping in for a slow uh, Congress uh, or a Congress that hasn't tackled the, 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 the underlying um, issues. And uh, this, this uh, is not, not an optimal arrangement, among other things, because when the Fed does act with a program like quantitative easing, uh, or with a with a huge backstop for uh, non-bank financial firms, it reduces pressure on Congress to act. So there's sort of a vicious cycle there. Here now, all of a sudden, these powerful interests have managed to get what they need from the Federal Reserve. They're no longer lobbying their legislators for for a political response uh, to their problems, and that's unfortunate because only the legislature can produce sort of policies that are. Um, uh, uh, in the interest of the whole of the whole country, uh, the Fed's policies always work, almost always work through the financial system, and so they're going to have disproportionate benefits for certain sorts of uh, parts of the economy, and that's not uh, not an ideal way to set up your economic policy. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Lev Menend. 
If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And um, get back to Lev Menand, who is an associate professor of law at Columbus, Columbia Law School. Uh, he served as senior advisor to the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury from 2015 to 2016 and as senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions from 2014 to 2015. His book, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis, is published by Columbia Global Reports. So um, you were part of the Fed system. Uh, were you able to try to, to do things to, to make things any better? I did work um, at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, although uh, it was uh, it was many years ago uh, before I think I had a full appreciation of the extent of the problem. Uh, I do think that we uh, we did make things better at the time, but like I said, uh, the Fed's attempt to make things better is is sort of a short term fix, not a long term fix. And the the place where there's real power to solve these problems is on Capitol Hill. Um, it's, it's just not within the sort of Fed's um, toolkit to, um, to restructure uh, the banking and financial system uh, uh, or to create other forms of macroeconomic uh, management uh, and support for the economy. Uh, that being said, I do think there are things that the Fed can and should be doing that it hasn't done. Uh, uh, I think the Fed is part of the problem in some ways, but the real the real center of, of, of the solutions um, is, is in the Congress. You look at how the Fed has shaped public policy with its balance sheet tool that's led to the stock market led the stock market to outpace outpace the productive economy. Hasn't that accentuated uh, the wealth gap in this country? Yes, definitely, especially over the last two years. Uh, but more, also more broadly over the past 12 years, we've seen relatively weak economic performance since the 2008 crisis. The economy's had a very hard time recovering to its uh, pre-recession uh, trend lines, both following 2008 and following 2020. Even today, there are fewer people in the workforce now than there were uh, in, in uh, January of 2020. Uh, and the economy is still not producing as much uh, as it was projected to be producing at this time, uh, at, at, you know, before the pandemic. And so we have a we have a relatively weak economy, but because Fed policy works with the financial system, and the Fed has gone outside of its traditional role to try to loosen financial conditions, we have an extremely rich. Uh, stock market, uh, you know, until, until the last several weeks where the Fed has sent indications that it's going to reverse course rapidly uh, and the market began to sell off, we, we were at record. Uh, we were record high stock prices. Um, and, and obviously, um, you know, having a, uh, an approach to, to recessions and economic weakness that 
um, in you know inflates asset prices. Uh, is uh, is an approach to responding to an economic downturn that's going to benefit people who own assets, uh, and you know it's a sort of trickle down sort of uh, response to to a recession where you know certain wealthy people basically uh, experience a positive shock to their uh, to their wealth, and then that leads them to increase spending, and that you know that that's what's supposed to feed in towards uh, towards. Uh, broader economic recovery. In the book, I talk about how there are other ways to do macroeconomic management that don't work like that, and that would be better than what we rely on now. Uh, uh, and because, we, because one of the byproducts of what we rely on now is just, you know, is, 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 is a widening gap. Uh, uh, and this is, a, this is especially problematic in, in housing markets. A lot of Fed policy has been geared towards uh, uh, um, increasing housing prices in various ways, uh, largely by lowering the cost of, of, of having a mortgage. And that locks out new generation, uh, uh, the new next generation of people from entering the housing market because houses are so expensive. You say you worried about the financial system's ability to continue functioning with 15 percent interest rates. Um, yeah. So one one thing that I think is really missing from the conversation right now about the Fed's effort to fight inflation is uh, to what extent the fragility in the underlying financial system and monetary system will um, cause uh, the Fed's will, will, will essentially serve as a, as, as a block to the Fed actually achieving what it is saying it's going to try to achieve with respect to tightening financial conditions. In other words, the part of the reason that the Fed may have been keeping financial conditions so easy for so long is that the financial system needs easy conditions in order to function. And that it, when the Fed tries to tighten, it's going to find that our system is so fragile that that causes a panic uh, and forces it to ease, which would be a very unfortunate outcome that underlines the need for structural reform so that the Fed can actually uh, use uh, its tools in a discretionary basis without having to sort of cater to uh, unstable uh, underlying uh, financial markets. You mentioned Lehman Brothers earlier. How relevant are the collapses of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers or the problems that AIG faced? So, uh, you know, luckily today, hopefully, we don't have uh, shadow banking firms that are quite that large that are um, in, in, in such. Can uh, you define shadow banking firms? Yeah. So shadow banking firm, the book gets into this in quite a bit of detail, is, uh, is a firm that basically is maintaining deposit-like uh, liabilities just like, you know, it's just like when you log on at Bank of America, you see $3,000. A shadow bank uh, is doing something similar, uh, except it's not called a deposit because legally only banks are allowed to take deposits, so they've structured it differently. So a common type is a repo. Uh, now, individuals, you and me, we don't use that type of money. Usually shadow bank money, it's used for businesses and other financial firms. It's in the wholesale market. And so, like, let's say you're a business that you, you make widgets, you log on to your bank account and, and, you know, with Lehman Brothers, you might have repo in a certain amount. <laughs> and so it'll be, you know, 100 million in repo. And so that's a shadow bank. It's, it's, it's doing a business that's similar to a bank, but it's, 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 uh, 
it's structured slightly differently. And you know, the repo isn't FDIC insured. It isn't um, it isn't backstopped by the Fed in the in the way that the Federal Reserve is designed to backstop uh, banks with a uh, with a with a program called the discount window, uh, and so it's very flighty and runnable funding. So what happened to to Lehman Brothers is it experienced a bank run just like the sort of old fashioned bank runs from the movies that we used to have in the United States before deposit insurance and the Fed's discount window, when people would line up at the teller and they would all try to withdraw their cash. Uh, you know, they would try to take out their deposits. And of course, the bank doesn't have that cash. It's, you know, the deposits is really a separate type of money. And this, would, this, would, this is what the Great Depression was about. It was a series of, of runs like this that collapsed the banking system. Um, uh, so this is what happened to Lehman Brothers, right? Except it was all digital. It wasn't in person. A bunch of companies and, and investors withdrew their repos. They, they went to get their deposit money out. But Lehman Brothers, of course, doesn't have cash. Uh, and it, 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 mm -hmm. it rapidly collapsed. Um, and there's a wide range of companies uh, and, biz and financial businesses, uh, both domestically and a lot uh, overseas, that are doing a dollar deposit business still. Uh, of this sort that has this structural uh, instability of a banking system without deposit insurance uh, and, and, and a banking system that's not regulated like 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 the like the like the banking system is uh, after the Great Depression in the U.S. And so it, it's extremely vulnerable to these panic moments where everybody decides to remove their, you know, uh, their deposit equivalents. Uh, and we saw that in 2020 at, at, at large scale. In some ways, even it was it was it was at an even larger scale. It happened even more quickly in 2020 than it did in 2008. Um, and it took a huge amount of Fed support to stop that panic from turning into uh, a, a second great recession or 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 even worse, a, a great depression. What and did so Barney I, Frank say when this came up in Congress? So, uh, back in back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah, the the AI, AIG business. Uh, yeah. Well, so you know, uh, back in two thousand and eight, uh, the 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 idea that the Fed uh, would support the shadow banking system. Uh, you know, in the way that it supported the banking system was was sort of off the wall for policymakers. It wasn't even something that that was was on their radar screen. Uh, you know, the Fed uh, uh, for decades and decades had had played a limited role, focused on the banking system in 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 the financial system. And when AIG uh, teetered on the brink of collapse. Uh, the Fed made $80 billion available to AIG, lent it to AIG. And, and before doing that, it, you know, the, the Fed went and briefed Congress. And Barney Frank was one of the people they, uh, they briefed. And, and Barney Frank asked, where are you going to get all the money? Because it didn't even occur to him that, that the Fed had the authority to do this or that it had the, that had the resources to do it. Of course, the Fed does because the Fed prints money. Uh, so the Fed can create as much money as it wants. But that, that, that's something that sort of is widely understood now. But in 2008 was 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 a real novelty for people. 
You're listening to Let It Low, Pit It Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Lev Menand, whose book, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis, is published by Columbia Global Reports. We talked a bit about the differences between cash and deposits. What, what's been the impact of alternative forms of money like cryptocurrency, which seems to um, be uh, going up and down in the news in, recently? Yeah, great question. So first thing is it's important to distinguish between two types of cryptocurrency. One type is very, very new. Uh, not a lot of uh, parallels in U.S. financial history. Another type is, uh, you know, as old as the hills. Uh, it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's it's like shadow banking. So so the so the new type is is uh, is Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's a it's a cryptocurrency with a new unit of account. It's really a new money or it's attempting to be a new money. And I, f- um, I feel like I'm too old to even get involved in this. <laughs> you're certainly uh, you certainly shouldn't get involved, but I don't know if age has anything to do with it. Uh, it's a it's a very it's a very speculative and, and, and uh, 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 dangerous uh, sort of. Uh, uh, thing to get involved with, uh, where you really risk uh, losing losing all of your money. Uh, so I, I would say that that warning goes to to people regardless of their age. Um, uh, the so, so so the Bitcoin and the Ethereum, you can kind of think of that like foreign currency. They're like starting up a new currency, like the yen or the euro, except they're not a government. They're not accepting that currency in payment of taxes. There's no. Mm-hmm. Uh, financial system that's based on that currency that exists. They're create, trying to create a new, a new, a new economy based on a new currency. Um, and uh, what we've seen there is that uh, there's a lot of benefits to the existing uh, financial system and a lot of efficiencies in the existing financial system that makes it quite difficult to uh, to 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 start up a new currency. And that's not totally a surprise. If you think about it, there's a lot of good currencies around the world, the yen, the euro. These are good currencies. Nobody is using yen or euro in New York to pay for a coffee. Uh, and there's good reasons why you use the dollar and why, why a new currency like Bitcoin would not be more appealing uh, than the dollar. The other type of, of cryptocurrency is what's called a stable value coin or a stable coin, where... Uh, it's not in a new unit of account. It's not really. It's not really a new currency. It's a, a new technology for creating the currency we already have. Currencies we already have in use. And so, just like a bank is creating more dollars by opening up a ledger and and entering deposit account balances in it that people treat the same as the cash that's issued by the government. A stable coin issuer uh, like Tether is basically starting up a ledger and they're just listing dollar amounts and you can have an entry on that ledger just like you have an entry at Bank of America says how many dollars you have and people will exchange those tethers um, and and tether will transfer them on on its on its ledger this is simplifying quite a bit um, and that's just new shadow banking in a new form tether is a new Lehman Brothers um, a new money market mutual fund uh, a new overseas 
dollar issuer, and uh, and they have a, a they have a, a an asset portfolio that is uh, backing the value of the tethers they issue, just like shadow banks do. Um, but uh, you know, it, if there's large scale redemptions, they may or may not be able to uh, sell that portfolio to meet those redemptions, and that portfolio may or may not actually support. Um, a one-to-one -one convertibility of of the stablecoin uh, balances that they're issuing. Now, one and, of one of your suggestions to Congress is to the creation of new automatic stabilizers. What are they, and how would they work? So, an automatic stabilizer is a fiscal program, uh, a spending program that Congress authorizes, where the federal government um, spends money on something. Uh, it can be a number of different things. Um, a classic example is unemployment insurance program. So let's use that. Uh, uh, but it can be any program where the spending tends to rise uh, automatically. Uh, the program's uh, outflows tend to rise during periods when the economy is weak, uh, when, when uh, there's a demand shortfall, when we're in danger of a recession or already in a recession. And then when the economy is strong, automatically, in other words, without Congress changing the terms of the program, the outlays of the program, the amount of spending in the program falls, it reduces. So the economy is booming and the program is, is outlaying less. And so in that way, it serves as a stabilizer for the economy. It's helping to reduce the amount of demand on the economy when it's hot. Um, in reducing inflationary pressures, if you will, and demand on resources, and increasing demand on resources when the economy is cold and there's capacity just sitting on the sidelines automatically. And so think about how unemployment insurance does this. The, the government, the, the government uh, sets up in advance uh, a framework for when it will pay out certain amounts of money to certain qualifying individuals. And there, of course, in, in a weak economy, happen to be a lot more people qualifying. And so a lot more money is being dispersed during a weak economy. And then when the economy is booming, many, many fewer people are qualifying. And so much less money is being dispersed. We have and just a, a couple of minutes left, but I, I wanted to address another subject. How do you explain what happened when Sarah Bloom Raskin was nominated to the Fed board? By way of background, for, for listeners, Sarah Bloom Raskin is a former member of the Fed's Board of Governors, who also served as Deputy Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration, and who was recently nominated by President Biden to a vacancy on the Fed Board, uh, a particular position called the Vice Chair for Supervision. And her nomination, she ultimately uh, was forced to withdraw her nomination when uh, she encountered, her nomination encountered significant resistance from, uh, from uh, members of the Senate who would have had to approve uh, of her in order for her to get the job. Um, Was the, it a political thing? Republicans uh, opposed and Democrats supportive? It was, of course, a political thing. Um, uh, and, the, and the politics um, had to do with climate change. And so one of the things that's happened since 2008 is as the Fed has expanded its role, expanded its balance sheet, expanded the ways in which it interacts in the economy, this, it has raised all sorts of questions about what sorts of policy considerations it should be taking into account in all these new activities. And the statutory framework doesn't answer those questions because the statutory framework envisions a much narrower Fed. 
focus on the banking system. Doesn't envision uh, a very broad Fed uh, engaging in, uh, in, in a lot of emergency uh, uh, programs like this. And, uh, and, and one of the questions that has been raised is, should the Fed take into account uh, the extent to which uh, uh, potential uh, uh, recipients of its of its of its backstopping and lending facilities, the, their their tendency to pollute, uh, and so there's there's a big issue about what, what's the Fed's role in climate change. And so so one in one area, the Fed is regulating banks. So there's a financial stability concern. Or is the banking system uh, exposed to losses from climate change? And then there's also just a sort of a proactive concern. If the Fed is going to be lending large amounts of money into the economy like it did in 2020, should it be taking into account uh, whether the, the recipients of its loans are, are polluted? Well, we've got to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, we've run out of time. But uh, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. Uh, Lev Menand is Associate Professor of Law at Columbia, Columbia Law School. He served on the Fed Board, and he's written a book called The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis, published by Columbia Global Reports. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content Information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Fed Unbound, Central Banking in a Time of Crisis by Lev Menand. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And this month, WBAI is launching phase two of our tower rent campaign because our tower rent is about 17 thousand dollars a month (laughs) and we need to pay it you might also consider becoming a sustain the fed by the way is not giving us any money you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a bai buddy and we'll say thank you uh, if you do that with some perks and a bai tote bag for anyone who signs up to become a bai buddy for ten dollars a month or more Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And we're the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us um, tomorrow when Rachel E. Gross joins us to discuss her new book, Vagina Obscura. We'll see you then.